Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. I wanted to end this month on a more, um, positive note. First of all, thank you for all the greetings and everything, and all that you've done for me, and for all the helpful messages that I've received on Facebook and Twitter, but, um, I wanted to do something historical again because, well, Belarus and Russia are getting extremely shady again, so we'll get back to them next month, but I want to move on with our Russian-Alaska study, and hopefully we can move through Eastern Siberia this time, because, well, actually, the Western Siberia took a way longer time than the Eastern parts did, so it's time to get them through, celebrate Catherine the Great a bit. Maybe I should devote a whole episode to her. I'll think about that in the future, maybe, because that will also involve Crimea and Potemkin's conquests, and I lost half of the recordings there. Oh well. But uh, right now we're going to be moving through the parts of Western Siberia. Now, as I've spoken before, the main reason for the annexation of all of Siberia has been the richness of furs, really. Like we mentioned before, I have to remind you because, you know, it's been a few episodes ago, the conquered natives were made to pay their tribute to the Tsar in furs, and the furs... Isayak formed a very considerable part of the state revenue at the time. Grigory Kotolishin, a state official who in the reign of the Tsar Alexis Mikhailovich emigrated to Sweden and left a remarkable description of Muscovy in the first half of the 17th century, estimates that the total state revenue in the 40s, the 1640s that is, was about 1,600,000 rubles. About one-third of this sum, 500,000 rubles, was received from Siberian natives in Isayak as this fur tribute. Foreign trade in Muscovy, by the way, was a state monopoly, and furs were eagerly sought by European merchants who paid for them in gold due to the depletion of European beaver at the time. Therefore, Siberian furs and Siberian beavers and all sorts of things, well, they were extremely valuable. During the last 15 years of the 16th century, from 1585, as I mentioned before, the Russians had firmly established themselves with these forts, like I told you, on the northern reaches of the Oba rivers and its tributaries, and they built this chain of forts and towns there. At the very beginning of the 17th century, they reached the valley of the Yenisei, where they, again, got more of Isayak. The Yenisei and its tributaries, the lower Tungutska and Angara, presented an easy route for penetration into eastern and southern Siberia. In 1607, the fort of Tukhuransk was built near the estuary of the Lower Tungutska, and in 1608, the town of Yenisheysk. Ten years later, 
The Russians took possession of the district situated on the banks of the middle of Yenisei, where, in 1628, they founded the town of Krasnoyarsk, which is still one of the largest cities in Russia, and there have been protests there, and I have spoken about them before, but, well, now you know. From Turuhansk going up the lower Tungutska, the Cossacks, again, Cossack regiments, these kind of independent steppe-dwellers who did things on their own and were not exactly compliant with the Tsar's policies everywhere, they reached the banks of Lena and built the fort of Kiryansk there. Yakutsk was founded in 1632, which soon became the starting point for many expeditions in the northeastern districts of Siberia. In 1635, a Cossack expedition discovered the estuaries of the Lena River and River and hence, following along the shore of the Arctic Ocean, they reached the estuaries of the Yana, Indridka and Kolyma. Kolyma known for uh, gulags later on, but Kolyma estuary was found in 1644. In 1637 to 1640, going up the Aldan, Maya and Nudom, the Cossacks discovered the Sea of Ohotsk. And now we move on to the time period that I haven't covered before. In 1648, the Cossack chief Yerofey Khabarov, following the course of the Olekma, a tributary uh, part of the Lena River, reached the Amur, on the bank of which he built the town of Albazin, well known in the Siberian history for several sieges, which it bravely withstood against the Chinese. About the same time, close to that, namely in 1647, another Cossack chief, Shemon Dzhezhnev, starting from the estuaries of the Kolyma, passed round the Chukotsk Peninsula, thus discovering the straits between the continents of Asia and North America, which is obviously important. These straits were afterwards called the Bering Straits after a Danish admiral in the Russian service who visited this part of the world in 1725. From Yeniseisk, following the course of the Angara, the Russians penetrated to the upper reaches of the Lena and discovered Lake Baikal, well, very famous today, near which in 1654 they built the town of Irkutsk. By the end of the 17th century, the Russians reached Kamchatka and founded Petropavlovsk. Thus, in a period of 120 years, the Russians conquered the whole of northern and eastern Siberia from the banks of the Ob to Kamchatka. And, you know, the British established colonies on the eastern shores of the American continent approximately at the same time when Yermak came to Siberia. And, as far as I know, the first English colony in America, Virginia, was founded by Sir Walter Raleigh in 1584, and they reached the shores of the Pacific only in the middle of the 19th century. You know... You kind of have to appreciate the, uh, the craziness and audacity of the Siberian Cossacks. Of course, the conditions which the Russians found in Siberia were a bit more favorable for the conquest of the country than those which the English settlers met with in America. First of all, the Siberian rivers, large, huge rivers, with their numerous navigable tributaries, formed natural roads by which the penetration into the vast Siberian forests was made, well, comparatively easy. As mentioned previously, the basins of the Siberian rivers come so near to each other that the passage from one basin to the other was not difficult. If you compare this to the natural conditions in America, it's not so favorable. America's two main basins, well, North America's, the Mississippi and the Great Lakes, both have no natural connection or exit to the Pacific Ocean. The second favorable condition was that the Russians met in Siberia scattered and weak tribes of hunters, whom we discussed in huge detail in previous episodes. They were warlike, but they were not able to resist the well-armed and organized bands of Russian Cossacks. 
And, you know, that's why they were forced to petition the Tsar after all the abuses they suffered. As one of the Siberian historians says, quote, It was a case of firearms against bows and arrows. On the other hand, American pioneers had to deal with uh, numerous warlike tribes who um, listened to the Inward Empire podcast about the early fights between um, the Native Americans and the colonizers. Nonetheless, if you look in total, the feat performed by the Russian conquerors of Siberia, you know, it's truly remarkable. They had to suffer a lot, and, well, they did show kind of this adventuring spirit and uh, age of exploration stuff, and, yeah, you know, sidetrack, born too late to explore planet Earth, born too early to explore space. Kind of shame, you know. But yeah, this was all crazy town, and this continues. By the way, uh, note that about the native tribes. When the Russians will meet the uh, Alaskan natives, the story will go a bit differently, and we'll see um, slightly different interactions there, just, just so you know. The history of the early Siberian settlers is kind of full of descriptions of how they perished from every kind of deprivation. Chiefly from the lack of food, you know, starvation is a major issue. All the Russian forts and towns were on several occasions besieged by the natives, who, well, liked to rise in revolt against the heavy tribute and oppression, which was, well, there, and was both heavy and oppressive, and heavily disrupted their traditional way of life. The conquest of the southern parts of western Siberia was, however, a bit more difficult. The Russians had to fight a lot before they subjugated the numerous Mongol tribes who inhabited the steppes between the Urals and Altai Mountains. It could be stated, and a lot of historians state that, at least three, read four, and three of them say that, that during the 17th century the Russians were only able to hold what they had seized in the previous century and could not go deeper, could not penetrate into, into the heartlands of the steppes. Especially dangerous were the Tatar Risings of 1608. Let me remind you, this was when the son of Khan Kuchum invaded the Russian possessions and devastated the country around Tumen, and in 1628, when Tatars, who lived in the Barba steppe, defeated the Cossacks and invaded the Tata district. The Tatar raids and risings ceased only about 1680. In the 18th century, the Russians began their systematic penetration into the steppes. In order to achieve this, they employed the same methods which were employed in European Russia when the Moscow Tsars had to defend their country against the Crimean and Kazan Tatars. Like I said, chains of frontier forts. Always chains of frontier forts first, cities after them, together with hostages. Around these forts, then, were settled Cossacks who, in exchange for the lands granted to them, were obliged to enlist in the government service at the first summons. As the time went by, ordinary settlers built their huts in the vicinity of the forts and, well, thus became colonized Russians. In 1730 to 1735, the Orenburg line of forts was built, an important one. This one stretched all the way from the Caspian Sea to the middle of the Ural Mountains. This line separated the Bashkirs from the Kyrgyz, uh, Bashkirostan, by the way, being today a Russian republic, Kyrgyzstan being an independent country. By 1747, the Irtysh line had been formed along the upper reaches of that river. In 1754, it was joined by the Ishim line, and in 1773, by the lines of Novokuznetsk and Buhtarma. These forts served for offensive as well as defensive operations. A lot of expeditions from there were sent into the steppes from these forts, although they were often quite undermanned. These expeditions, partly by negotiations, partly by force, 
urged the nomads to recognize the supreme power of the so-called White Tsar. The merchants and traders followed the military expeditions, established trade relations with the wild tribes of Kyrgyz and Kalmyks, thus bringing cultural influence into the steppes. Gradually, the nomads submitted and became accustomed to the Russian rule. The final occupation of Siberia and of Central Asia took place in the second half of the 19th century. The last military expedition was carried out in 1885 when the Merv Oasis on the Persian frontier was annexed. Then, there was a treaty with China, concluded in 1858. By this treaty, the lands situated along the left bank of the Amur were annexed and in 1860, Count Ignatyev, the governor-general of eastern Siberia, by successful negotiations with the Chinese, managed to include in the Russian possessions the Usuri district, where the port of Vladivostok was constructed. In the beginning of 19th century, after the Boxer uprising, the Russian government forced the Chinese to lease to Russia northern and southern Manchuria. However, the unsuccessful war with Japan in 1904-1905 put an end to further penetration of the Russians into the Far East. And um, this is kind of a short sketch of the Far East part, and a lot of this was achieved by Catherine. But the question is how all of this was, was colonized, how this was maintained. Because at this point, the political situation again comes into question, you know. I'm doing this so that next time we can finally get to Alaska and then slip in an episode of uh, Catherine the Great too because I presume that Belarus and Navalny will take up a bit of our time in the future as well. Because, uh, you see, the first Siberian settlers were, obviously, those Cossacks and soldiers who conquered the country. It was usual in those early days that the Voyevodas, when they were ordered by the government to proceed to Siberia, recruited bands partly among the members of the military class and partly among the so-called freemen or volunteers. Sometimes the government ordered groups of Cossacks to go to Siberia for military service. The men recruited for the service received salary in money and in kind. But as the salaries were extremely small, as it was very difficult to transport grain and other goods from European Russia to remote places in the Siberia, the settlers were obliged to plow some land around the forts and settlements which they built. The main task of the military settlers being, however, not colonization, but the occupation, physical presence in the country. They were not really good and permanent colonists. They founded forts and towns and subjugated local native tribes, collected tribute from them, and generally established the Russian rule over the country. And during the first hundred years, military bands were always on the move, and until the country had been firmly occupied and the natives finally subjected, the Cossacks and soldiers could not settle as permanent colonists. The second group of settlers who went to Siberia under government instigation were the peasants, the Plowmen, as they were called. They were sent to this faraway country in order to provide the military detachments with food supplies. Transport of grain from European Russia was costly and irregular, and it was more expedient to have grain, the staple food of Russians at that time of history, grown on the spot. These plowmen were also either recruited from the volunteers or sent at the orders from the authorities for the quote-unquote Tsar's service in Siberia. They were freed from taxes for three years, and given assistance during their journey to their new homes. After the colonists had settled in, they were made to surrender a certain portion, usually one-fifth, of their harvest to the government authorities. It must be added that the number of voluntary settlers was extremely small. Far greater number of the original settlers in Siberia was recruited from the so-called rowing men, 
They were peasants who had fled from their masters, and also thieves, robbers, and criminals, who found a safe refuge in the Siberian wilderness from the long arm of the law. It must be remembered that the conquest of Siberia con coincided, uh, interestingly enough, with the tying up of the sort of previously free peasants and uh, brutally introducing a serfdom. Yeah, serfdom is a major issue and differences with chattel slavery are extremely minimal because in both cases serfs could be sold, they could be beaten, abused, played on cards, whatever, except that the serfs could, you know, petition to the Tsar. Meanwhile, American slaves could not, but otherwise, uh, being a Russian serf, well, your situation greatly depended on what kind of master did you have, and really, it was slavery in everything but in name. You know, it's just, uh, it's a slightly different situation, but not by much, so to speak. The landowners, Pomeshchiki, they received unrestricted power over their serfs. They could take them into their houses for personal service, transport them to their lands or other parts of their country, sell them together with their families or separately, rape them, beat them, do whatever. Well, not officially, but they still did it anyways. Nobles played for serfs and cards and all the fun stuff. According to a law made in the middle of the 16th century, the landowner, if he murdered his serf, could not be brought to justice for this crime because serf was, well, barely a human being anyways. The hardships which served them inflicted on the peasants were so severe that many of them left their homes and fled to Ukraine, to the Don Cossacks and to Siberia, where they hoped to find better conditions for life. The government, central government here, and especially the local Siberian authorities who were interested in bringing agricultural settlers to these vast lands, at first looked rather sympathetically on this influx of um, rowing men, and in many instances even encouraged it. Later on, in the last quarter of the 17th century, when the population in the central Russian provinces had diminished to an alarming extent, because, according to the Russian historians, the peasant population in the central districts in the 1690s was about 20% of the number living there in 1650s, because uh, brutal served them and people like to run away, specifically if they're not watched very closely, and, uh, yeah, Russia's a vast place. After that, after that, measures were taken to prevent the peasants from fleeing to Siberia, and strict orders were issued to the Siberian authorities, quote, to seek the fugitives and return them to their lawful masters. All these orders remained, however, mostly on paper. The vast dimensions of the country, the complete absence of communications and the scarcity of population afforded many chances to these, um, rowing men, I just love the term, to escape the authorities and, um, well, do as they please. And I've, I've read some, some reports on this, and, you know, the land is so vast that if you remember my episode on the Old Believers, like, it was weird because uh, only in the 70s, I think, in the 70s they were found, like, the last Old Believers living randomly in Siberia where they didn't even know that the Soviets even existed. And uh, from a paper written in 1932... One of my sources here of this uh, podcast, I will quote this. It's written in 1932, it's before World War II, but uh, still, quote. Only two years ago, the Soviet papers reported the discovery of a community of 500 persons in northeastern Siberia. These people had lived for many years without any communication with the outside world. They knew nothing about the Great War or about the Bolshevist. I like the, I like, it's not Bolshevik, it's Bolshevist, it's just great. Bo Bolshevist Revolution. 
It is easy to imagine, therefore, that 300 years ago, people had much more chance of settling in remote, out-of-the-way places where the government officials could not find them. End quote. But yeah, yeah, it's like, up to the 1970s, there were people just randomly being found and located, and no one knew what was going on there, and, uh... If you think about it, I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere in the very depths of Siberia, there are just some people living there in their commune and they don't even know that the Tsar is gone and they don't even know that the World War II has ever happened. Because that all is possible. And that, that just makes it extra interesting. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. The third part of early Siberian settlers was composed of the exiles. Our buddies, the exiles. Oh boy. As you might have noticed, they play a huge part in the um, overall thing. I should get back to the Stalin series. Don't remind me. I know. I know. I have to just, you know, after I move to Lutz, I have to get my books back in order to a recap episode. I'll do that. I'll do that. That's on the list as well. It's just that, well, after the move, my books are all a bit of a mess, but... Oh, wow. I have to dig up my four-hour recording files and redo all of them now. But it's gonna happen. Don't worry. Anyway, the first exiles were sent to Siberia as far back as 1593. They were the citizens of the town of Uglich, who had taken part in the riots which had occurred there after the murder of the Tsarevich Dmitri, the youngest son of Ivan the Terrible, Ivan Grozny, in 1591. And at this point, yeah, well, there is still a huge debate on what really happened to Uglich on this occasion. The more generally accepted view is that the young prince Dmitri was murdered, and that the townsmen rose to lynch the murderers, but that a government commission, after declared that the boy's death was an accident, and then they punished the townsmen, and, you know, the fact that they punished the townsmen, that's kind of certain. The prince was subsequently personated successively by several pretenders to the throne, and one of whom actually succeeded in mounting it for a bit. It's like the time of, the time of troubles is a bizarro period in, in Russian history, where there are, like, at least six Tsareviches, and then we have um, Boris Godunov and all sorts of fun stuff. I should probably get to that too. Anyway, together with them, the church bell, which had sounded the alarm bells with the riot, you know, the gathered the riot together, was also sent to uh, Siberia, which is interesting. And the person who had sounded the bell to gather the riots in this Uglish town, his ear was cut off and, like, they punished the bell too. The church bell was now used... Uh, for striking the hours, and the person who rang the bell, his ear was cut off. It's like a bizarro thing. This bell, as the Siberian historian Slotsev remarks, quote, was the first immortal Siberian exile. It became the symbol of future destinies of Siberia. At first, only political offenders were sent to Siberia, but in 1669, 
an ukaz was published according to which some crimes punishable hitherto by imprisonment were to be punished by exile to Siberia for life. Hey! Later on, prisoners taken by the Russians in wars with Poland and Crimea, and we'll get the Crimean Wars with Catherine the Great, obviously, in the future episodes, were also sent to Siberia. Many of them remained there until they died. Peter Great, for instance, exiled many of his so-called teachers in the military art, the Swedes, to Siberia. And in order to make them stay there, he ordered the Russians, under threat of severe punishment, to give their daughters and sisters as wives to the exiled Swedes, just to introduce more Swedish blood into the local populations. Now, you know, it's quite easy to understand that uh, life of the exiles in the 17th century was crazy hard. However, you might think that, but on the contrary, the exiles enjoyed full freedom, and some of them even occupied government posts of considerable importance, or served as volunteers in the government troops. They also took part in private expeditions or settled on the land that became these so-called plowmen. From the reign of Peter the Great, however, the conditions changed for the worse. The mineral resources of the country began to be worked, and owing to the lack of free workmen, the labor of exiles was employed in the mining industry. Several katorgas were organized in the Urals and in Siberia, which is prisons with compulsory labor for prisoners, and guess where's that's gonna lead to in the future. These katorgas were attached to the mines and metal works which belonged to the state. In 1754, the Empress Elizabeth abolished the death penalty for criminal offenses. The criminals were sent instead to Siberia either for compulsory work in the mines or for permanent settlement. In 1760, this legislation was supplemented by another ukaz, according to which landowners were given the right to deport their serfs to Siberia at their pleasure. So, you know, you look strongly at your master and you get sent instantly to the glorious, hot, warm, welcoming lands of Eastern Siberia. A round of applause, man. A round of applause. The ukaz greatly augmented the number of exiles because it provided channels for getting rid of rebellious or so-called lazy serfs. Because, again, this is a similarity which I read in Colchin's book about serfdom and slavery, which compares the two. And, yeah, it's, it's always that the masters complain that the, the subordinates are lazy. Well, you know, forced labor is not very work-efficient. Besides, the landowners utilized this ukas to deport those peasants who fell under their master's displeasure. How large is the number of exiles of this category may be judged from the fact that in 1771, 6,000 people were settled in Siberia and over 4,000 were on their way from European Russia. That's a lot of people if you remember the population values there. Besides, many of the exiles perished from starvation, disease, and, well, other privations such as, again, starvation! Whee! As the official report states, out of the exiles and from Moscow and Kaluga, only one-fourth part reaches the destination, and even these are all suffering from grave illness. End quote. Therefore, you know, you shouldn't kind of imagine that only desperate criminals and thieves and every bad person were exiled to Siberia. On the contrary, the majority of exiles belonged to, you know, regular peasants, and they were good people, just, you know, they were deemed to be harmful and bad and... And after the split of the Russian Orthodox Church in 1666, many religious sectarians were sent there. And then the Strelce, the regular soldiers of the old army who under the rule of Natalia Alexeyev and her son Peter the Great often rebelled against the government, yeah, and they also were sent there. There were also war prisoners and Cossacks from Ukraine and the Don and the peasants whom their owners just deported. 
Owing to the absence of regular and reliable statistics, it's very difficult to certain the exact number of the Russian population in Siberia in the 17th and 18th centuries. And the figures I'll tell you later about are to be taken as only approximate. According to figures given to me by researchers, the male Russian population in 1709, that is 125 years after the conquest of Siberia, was 152,788. In 1783, the total number of both sexes reached the figure of 1,059,850. Generally speaking, in the 17th century, the Siberian population increased mainly through the influx of these rowing men, while in the 18th century, the increase was mainly due to the wide practice of deportation. Colonization of Siberia in the first half of the 19th century proceeded along the same lines. The largest portion of the new settlers were still recruited from the exiles. But at the same time, the government began to realize that, uh, yeah, you know, something must be done to improve the economic and maybe cultural conditions, uh, you know, in all this mega-huge land that we own. In 1808, a law was passed which attempted to regulate colonization and legalize the settlement of the so-called state peasants. That is, peasants who lived on the state land and were free from the bondage of serfdom. Free from the bondage and serve them on paper only because they were, uh, well, everyone basically just called them state serfs. It's kind of like, you know, slaves who don't belong to one master, they belong to the federal government instead. Approximately the same. They were slightly less free because the, well, government as usual is less efficient than private owners at doing whatever, including slavery. But still. The Siberian authorities were ordered to grant good arable lands to those peasants who came to Siberia with the intention of settling there. The settlers were given subsidies in money and in kind, and also freed from all taxes and military service for a period of five years. But again, again, as usual, and you know, if you listen to my show, then you know that this law remained just on paper and wasn't enforced in as much as the state peasants didn't experience the hardships as, well, basically the serfs of people who just exploited their serfs for their private gain, but they were still taxed terribly bad. The Siberian authorities treated voluntary settlers exactly in the same manner as they treated criminal exiles, thus hardly making the colonists' life any better. In 1831, the government ordered a general land survey in Siberia to ascertain the reserves of land suitable for agricultural purposes and for colonization. Further legislation in regard to colonization of Siberia was passed in 1842. This law regulated the conditions under which the state peasants could emigrate to Siberia, and granted some facilities and privileges for the settlers. These regulations remained in force until 1889. But all of these laws failed to produce any good results. The number of settlers coming to Siberia with permission and under the auspices of the government was, well, rather tiny in comparison. Between 1823 and 1851, only 19,503 people were settled in the province of Toboysk. The number of compulsory immigrants, the exiles, was far greater. According to the official statistics, between 1823 and 1863, 356,000 people were sentenced by the criminal courts to exile in Siberia. The exiles, however, made very poor settlers. Many of them had no inclination for agriculture and preferred to wander from one place to another, begging or stealing their food and clothing. Very few of them had enough money for purchasing cattle and agricultural machinery. The Siberian peasants were rather reluctant to give their girls and women as wives to the exiles. The government tried to found so-called state settlements for the exiles and granted money for the establishment of such settlements. 
but all these settlements proved to be complete failures. The exiles did not want to live in them, and fled from them almost as soon as they were brought there. At the same time, the government forbade voluntary immigration to Siberia. State peasants, if they went to Siberia without permission from the government authorities, were prosecuted, and no land was given to them. Serfs, of course, if they fled from their masters, were treated like criminals. Now we come to their timeline where, uh, where Alaska actually started to play a role. So I'll end this episode here, but we're moving on and we're going to have an episode on Catherine the Great. Then we're going to do Alaska in between, you know, the usual episodes of Belarus and Navalny until that cloud settles down a bit. And of course, this episode reminded me that I should do my Stalin series. But at any rate, all your messages and everything has invigorated me and thank you for that. And thank you for supporting me. And please, please continue to supporting the show and we'll try our best. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.